Welcome to Mommy Diary, the podcast. I'm your host, Angela Kim. I'm a creative, lifestyle blogger, and mom of four. This podcast is all about honest stories of motherhood and real conversations with real mothers just like you. Unlike my Instagram account, not everything will be beautiful. I promise to be vulnerable and share stories of all the struggles and the incredible moments we all share as women and mothers. So do me a favor and screenshot this episode, add it to your IG stories, then tag me at Mommy Diary. I'd love to feature you on my Insta stories. We're all in this together, mamas. Let's dive into the show. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Mommy Diary, the podcast. As you guys know, I had to skip last week's episode because life just got so busy. But I also know that you guys understand the way things are right now. And today, I have a really, really special guest. Her name is Selena Wright. And she is my daughter's speech therapist. And we've been working with her for a long time. And Miss Selena, to me, is like part of my friend and extended family like a group of she's like one of my biggest supporters as a special a special needs parent she's seen us through like from the beginning of our journey to now she's seen at least from I don't remember about four or five I want to say I, I might be wrong but it just feels like it's been so long I know she knew at least when she was still in diapers So I want to pass on the mic over to Miss Selena. I want you guys to get to know her. She is an amazing mother. She's a therapist and she's just a a huge advocate. And she is so knowledgeable in this field of special education, especially speech therapy. So I'm so excited that she's on here. And I know you guys are going to take so many amazing things away from this episode. So hi, Miss Selena. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Angela. I'm really excited for this as well. Yeah, it's great to be here. So excited to have you. We were trying to record this episode for months now. And given our busy schedules, she mm-hmm. also has three children. I have four. We're still in the middle of this pandemic. You know, there is no more work and home life balance. And we're just talking about this before we recorded. But I really wanted her to be on the show because I know some of you guys have children with some form of special needs. Um, There's a spectrum of that. um, And she is an expert in speech pathology. So I wanted to ask some of those questions that can help you guys guide you and help you guys to find the right support, the right experts in your lives. So yeah, Miss Selena, can you um, just begin by introducing yourself? And I would love to hear more about your role not only as a therapist but as a mother because I know that greatly impacted what you're doing today. Absolutely yeah thank you and I'll try my best to weave those two stories together because sometimes I think I compartmentalize and depending on who I'm speaking with I talk from my mom hat with my mom hat on and then other times I'm speaking purely as a professional but the beautiful thing about your podcast and being a guest tonight is that I get to blend the two because you're right. They did influence, they they still influence each other very much. So, so my journey in the whole in motherhood and then subsequently special needs started quite some time ago, 16 years ago, uh, to be exact, our oldest son, Jacob just had his birthday at the end of October and just turned 16 
And that was my um, entrance into motherhood. And also, I didn't know it at the time, but was also going to be my entrance into the world of special needs. So it was, um, as all, you know, first entries are and subsequent entries, uh, very unique. And both my husband and I, we've known each other, oh gosh, since we were like, I was a freshman in high school and he was a sophomore. And uh, yeah, so high school sweethearts. And Jacob came into our lives as I was exiting high school, actually. So I was a very young mom. And that in and of itself had, as I can imagine you and the listeners would think, had its own unique challenges from a wasn't planned. And, you know, as starting off so young, we were both entering college and had plans for that. And then also, you know, the the concerns of our family and the challenges there. So that was its own thing to deal with. And then, you know, pretty typical pregnancy, but the birth was very unique. I remember shortly after starting labor, uh, Jacob going into distress and you could just feel the tension was palpable. You could just feel something wasn't right. And it wasn't immediately told to us, but by the behaviors and changes and actions by the doctor and the medical staff. Uh, we just didn't feel something was right. And sure enough, I was rushed to emergency surgery for a C-section. And I remember when I you know, woke up, that was one of my first thoughts was, how's, how's the baby? How's Jacob? And he had um, had a loss of oxygen because he had swallowed some of the meconium. It had obstructed his airway. And the position that he was in during delivery made it very challenging uh, for them to deliver. And so as a result of that lack of lack of oxygen, uh, cerebral palsy was a result. And cerebral palsy, the neurological uh, disorder and results in a level of disability. And depending on the amount of time and other factors uh, without oxygen, the severity can be different for each individual. So for Jacob, we didn't know what that would look like. And he was uh, in the NICU for 23 days. So that was very challenging. Again, just, gosh, if I take myself back to that time, it's been so long, 16 years ago, but dealing with the medical outcomes, which we didn't, you know, fully realize yet. And then again, still being, you know, this young couple who wasn't married and, um, dealing with all of that stress and concern. Um, it was a really challenging time. And I'm really grateful that even at that time in my life, I had a very strong walk with the Lord and leaned in on that really, really heavily, even at such a young age. And I think that and also my family, regardless of what they thought about our choices and our decisions at that time, were supportive of us. And that was really the only two things that really got us through. Fast forward to, I'll fast forward like probably a year because I think that's when we had a better handle of what was really going on. He had been diagnosed at that point with uh, CP and then also his seizure disorder. And we had found out at that time that it was uh, profound and still didn't know what that would look like uh, in a lifetime. But that was what was told to us by numerous uh, neurologists and pediatricians and everyone who consulted on this case. And how old was he at this time when he received this diagnosis? 
uh, early on, he was only a couple months old when he received the CP diagnosis. And in that first year, we had gone through quite a bit too. There were uh, some feeding challenges. So he had a G2 placed and there were, you know, seizures and we were trying to get the medications right and all of that. And, uh, and then by a, by a year's time, we had already been uh, enrolled with the regional center in, we live in California. And so we have this amazing regional center system, 21 or 24 uh, regional centers across the state who serve individuals with disabilities. So we had already been um, enrolled in, or he had been enrolled in services. So everything from early start to OT to PT. And that was a whirlwind to navigate and figure out. Uh, but our top priority was his health and making sure that we had the seizures under control, that his nutrition was adequate. Those were our top priorities at that time. Sleep. Oh my gosh, I remember those nights. There, were, I think probably for the first year, and I'm not really exaggerating, there were very few restful nights for him. He just, you know, his nervous system was just had gone through so much trauma. So to sleep for a restful, you know, amount of time, I mean, any first year is going to be, you know, you, you have recently a newborn and so, you know, you know, they don't sleep well, but this was different, you know, and, um, it was my first time being a mom, which I think looking back was a blessing. That was a blessing in and of itself because I First of all, I had extreme youth on my hands, so I had more energy maybe than I would have if it would have been later in life, but also just ignorance was bliss at the time of being a first-time mom and being, you know, experiencing this for the first time. Um, we didn't know any different. So when I would be completely exhausted, and my mom was one of my biggest support systems to both my husband and I, and she helped so much during that time. And we would just, you know, cause Jordan was working like two or three jobs at the time. And, and I remember we would just switch off because he would just sleep for these short bouts of time and then be alert and awake or be, you know, crying and upset. So I just thought that was kind of maybe normal. And then when we started talking to doctors and stuff, realized that, no, you know, there should be some maturity there, maturation that wasn't happening. And yeah, so that was, that was a crazy first year. If I think back about it. Oh my gosh. When I hear your story, like it brings back my first year with Elise. I, first of all, you're amazing and you're so brave for deciding to have a child at that young age. You know, you must have a very close relationship with God because a lot of, frankly, a lot of women don't, you know, I think when they feel like a child is there or comes too quickly, they make the other choice to terminate the pregnancy, um, which I think is always a really sad thing because mm-hmm. now after having four children, I mean, every life is so precious. And I also had Elise younger, like when I, I mean, I wasn't as young as you, but I wasn't ready. My husband and I, mm-hmm. we weren't thinking the baby was going to happen so fast. So for us, it was, we just had to grow up. We just had to figure it out. It wasn't a planned like, oh, hey, let's have a baby. Like we were so young. And I think there was a big, I guess, responsibility that came with that very first decision. Um, And I felt like I was strong enough. And then when Elise came with special needs, and for, for me too, it was a very perfectly normal pregnancy. Even when she was born, she was perfectly healthy. And then her first year, first year was when I started seeing the signs and I didn't know any better. Like you said, it was such a blessing because 
I didn't know any better. I would even read books that would talk about, um, you know, some really smart kids talk late. And I was very hopeful. And I didn't even know anything was wrong with Elise at the time because I thought that's just how things were. It was incredibly hard. She was very sensitive to noise, sensitive to just her world around her. I think it was a sensory issue. So my first year was really, really hard too, but I had youth on my side and I didn't know any better. Like you said, ignorance is bliss. And looking back, I'm now, you know, raising my fourth child. It's so much easier. First, first time motherhood is hard for anyone, but mm-hmm. if, you know, the listeners, if there are listeners out there who have special needs children, like your extreme fatigue and your extreme um, emotions are valid because it's extremely hard. Just being yeah. a mom, a typical, you know, a functioning child is hard enough, but when your child has special needs, that's like hard on another level. Absolutely. And there's, there's challenges that you never thought you'd face. I mean, how could you, right? In a lot of these circumstances. And when I think back at that time too, what just came to me is later down the road, years later, when I would enter the field as a professional, I see now the work that was done being in me then, uh, specifically in regards to empathy, because there were some really challenging conversations and sitting in the seat of a parent that's I was on the receiving end of of the news and information that was being delivered to me and in many instances we've been so blessed and Jacob has been so blessed to have such quality medical care and the professionals who many of them who we dealt with um, and continue to deal with and work alongside are extremely empathetic and very caring but there were those situations, I can recall a time when he um, had his G2 placed. And if you've ever had a child in the hospital, you know that it's a revolving door of caregiving. Uh, I know right now it's different because of COVID and that breaks my heart. But under typical circumstances, um, you know, we would have someone there by his bedside 24-7 and oftentimes multiple people. But on this one particular instance, um, Jordan couldn't be there. I, I believe he was working and my mom, you know, needed to, both my parents needed to do something. And so it was just me and I just, you know, was there with him and doctors come around and make their rounds when they can and when it fits into their schedule. So I wasn't expecting to see this particular neurologist, but he stopped by and I didn't think anything of it. I thought he was just coming by for a checkup, but he was coming by to And at that time, we had already been provided information about the severity of Jacob's condition at that point. But he really was there to, I guess, help me understand in his own way about this new realm that we were entering in terms of nutrition. Because at that time, the G-tube had not been placed. It it was in this hospital stay, but up until that moment, it hadn't been placed. So he was letting me know that it would be placed. And when I had these questions of if it would be temporary and, and he was informing me that it would be much longer than that. But the way that he was doing it, I can just recall this very sobering tone of voice. And the information that he was giving me was very straightforward. And in that moment, being by myself, you know, and I remember Jacob had a roommate, but there was a curtain between us. And I believe that child's mother was sitting by their bedside at that time. And the doctor delivered what he had to, 
very pro forma and then left. And I'm just sitting on the other side of this crushed, you know? So I remember racing out and calling my mom right away. And so when I think back, you know, in that moment, there was so much pain still and confusion and everything, but I still operate out of that. And even today, you know, when I think of conversations I have with parents wearing then my professional hat, how that influenced me in a very positive direction. Did you feel that the doctor was, just didn't have uh, the empathy at the time yeah. that the parent yeah, I, um, needed? Yeah, and I, it did two things for me. At the time, I didn't say anything because I didn't know what to say. I didn't look at myself. I didn't see myself as an advocate yet at that point. So I didn't know what to say. So I'm sure had I spoken up and expressed what I was feeling or thinking at that time, he probably would have changed his delivery. There's that. And I don't know. I don't presume to know what he was thinking at that moment in time. I mean, he himself might've been going through something and made needed to get home to something really, you know, important to him. So this was, I need to deliver this information. Then I need to leave because I have this very, you know, whatever going on. But Regardless of what that was, that's how it came across and that's how it was delivered. And so that also influences me to whatever kind of day I have as a person, that doesn't matter when I'm sitting in front of a child and I'm working with them because they don't know, you know, any of that and they don't deserve any of the, you know, lackluster energy that I might be feeling. Um, We all have it, but there's really, there needs to be ways for professionals to rally and to uh, provide the best, which, you know, in my notes and kind of some preparation for the interview, I was thinking, I'm always striving to be the professional that I'd want to sit in front of Jacob. I think that's the biggest uh, takeaway lesson from those years. And, And don't get me wrong, I saw so much and was influenced by so many mentors and professionals during that time who was like, okay, I'm, I'm ripping that page out of their playbook. I'm doing that because that's amazing. Um, so there was obviously those two, but it all prepared me for it down the road later when I enter the field. First of all, like when I hear this story, it makes me really sad. I almost like want to cry next to that, that lonely, that mom who was there alone sitting there and listening to this message because I too, my moment didn't look exactly like that, but I definitely had those moments where I was completely alone and I had to kind of sit with this news that my child is never going to be like other kids. It's a really difficult pill to swallow. Um, It gets easier with time, but I don't think that pain truly goes away because it's a, it's a constant thing, you know, like their, their special, their disability is always there. So you always have to do things differently. Even now I have a 13 year old daughter, Elise has a younger sister. And even now she'll, randomly say mom I wish Elise didn't have special needs I wish she was like a normal sister I wish we can do these she'll still talk about this till this day and they're 15 and 13 years old so I think it's an adjustment that needs to be made constantly but like that beginning like those early years were so isolating did you ever have did you ever experience like depression or anxiety or any of these you know um, like I I had severe d- depression after my second baby, but I think a big part of it 
was dealing with Elise was because that's when I started learning about her disability. And that's when we're doing the tests. And that's when I really had to kind of take in my reality. And because until then, I was very like ignorant and happy. So, oh, it's going to be okay. She'll grow out of it. You know, everyone in my family or, you know, everyone told me, oh, she's still too young. She's two years old. You're not really going to know yet. But I knew pretty early on. So, yeah. Did you have any of those? um, You know, when I like, how did you get through them? Yeah. When I think back, not necessarily in in that way. I think for so many years with Jacob, we were just on this forward, like we just couldn't stop. We were just in constant, uh, that fight or flight. We were just in that constant fight, just moving forward. And because not only, I mean, we were also this young couple trying to then start a life together. So there was working and we both decided to still pursue and our family supported us and still pursuing education and, you know, to then lead to later careers. So while parenting him, both my husband and I were, you know, still working Jordan and, you know, I don't know how he did it, uh, multiple jobs and going to school and everything. So there was just this constant. So I think because of that, I didn't settle into, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There were definitely moments of those waves that would just, if you've ever been in the ocean and been taken by a wave, there were those moments, but for longer periods of time, no. However, with my two uh, younger children, yes. With Jackson and even I would say to more of a an extreme with John, our youngest. And I don't know if that had something to do with I was older and so maybe my hormones, you know, obviously were different. But with them, yeah. And it was during that postpartum, probably four to six week period. And that was that kind of threw me because with Jacob I didn't necessarily deal with that. It was it was very cerebral cerebral when I would experience like these waves of sadness and things and I could very much move on to the next thing after they were done. But with the two younger kiddos, uh, no, I mean, regardless of myself telling myself to shake it off or to read something encouraging or listen to something encouraging and it would go away, that didn't happen. And it was my body's way of, you know, experiencing, you know, that, that change that we have after we have a baby. And thankfully, all of a sudden it was like, I don't know if it was like this for you, any time, the times you might've experienced that, but it was like, all of a sudden one day I'd wake up and I felt every day I felt a little bit more like myself. And then one day I woke up and I was myself again. And I felt like myself again. And that was so freeing. And my heart goes out to women who experience that for longer periods of time and, and can't get to that other side without, you know, more extreme measures. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I, hear a lot of stories like yours where I think it's hormonal and Mm -hmm. it's chemical as well. Like we don't really look, think about the science of like the pregnancy and labor and the postpartum process, but like our bodies are doing amazing things. It's making a baby and it's making breast milk. Yeah. yeah. And then your, you know, your uterus is contracting back to its normal size. I mean, I feel like our bodies are just like over working and it's doing all types of things to nourish the baby and the mom needs nourishment too Mm -hmm. and we tend to forget the mom just gets thrown into this caregiver role Mm -hmm. and yeah I have so much empathy like nothing but love and support for new moms because 
it's if you have three children, I feel like it's safe to say that you're gonna know this feeling, whether it's with your first, your second, or your third child. I think it's just part of motherhood. It's just part of our body's way of going through different changes. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely like no shame in it. I think it's just very natural. Absolutely. And I thank you for having a platform like this to also discuss those things because and I grew up around a lot of women and mothers and I don't recall it being really discussed or talked about. So when I was experiencing it myself, I was just like at a loss. Like what is this? And and it's frustrating, absolutely. But I think, you know, in in recent years, it's people are more willing and there are more platforms to discuss it. And that's the thing though, like when I was in it, even if I could hear that, even if I had heard another woman's story about it, it still it didn't impact me and it didn't penetrate that time period. But I was thankful that it was there. I was still thankful that it was there, even though it didn't necessarily solve it. I'm sure it helped. No, definitely. And I think now more than ever, it just needs to be more culturally and socially accepted. I think Mm -hmm. feeling that not being so happy about motherhood every single day as soon as a baby's born. A lot of moms can't bond with their babies right away. Mm -hmm. And they feel they call it baby blues, which sometimes I think minimizes what you're feeling because you know, we're different women, we show our emotions, we carry them differently. I think there's a spectrum of, you know, different mm-hmm. emotions we feel. So I think we just have to normalize like, yeah, not feeling like yourself after giving birth, whatever Absolutely. that looks like. That's whether what- that's even like fitting into clothes after, you know, what exactly. not, you know, emotional or what you're experiencing in a postpartum depression way. But even just balancing your schedule, you know, like, I think there's something like in every stage, like the first time motherhood, it's more like, Oh, my gosh, I have to give up being a woman. Now, Yeah, there's that transition. I'm a a mom now, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. I don't like this role as a mom, you know, I want to go back to being a single woman. And then with your second child, it's like, Oh, my gosh, I have two. like, how am I supposed to right? like distribute my love and my attention equally? Like I love my first baby, I can't bond with my second. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like that in third yeah. base mm-hmm. at every stage. So I want the listener to know that too. It's yeah. there's always something. That's why I always try to like constantly talk about it, even though I'm no longer in that place, because I don't want them to see me and my, you know, my blog post and my Instagram pages and think, oh wow, she has four kids and everything's just perfect. No, this is 15 years into it and I still have rough days. But doesn't it get I don't want to say easier, but it does get somewhat. It does. It it does, does get right? very, you know, like, I've had this thought. Get used to it, maybe. Yeah. I've had this thought after. Should I ever, you know, should we ever have a fourth? I don't know if that's in the cards for us, but should I ever be in that circumstance again? I thought how powerful it would be for myself right now uh, in the state of mind that I am as a mom to write letters to myself in anticipation, knowing that that might come up again. And then if I ever experienced that again, to read those words from myself to know, because I think that was the most maybe scary thing about it when I was experiencing those periods is I would think like, am I ever going to feel normal again? And why can't I, you know, and I can't explain why I feel this way. But if I could read my own words talking back to me to assure, you know, you will get back there and you will feel like you again that would have been so comforting, you know? So if, 
if, and, and I would do that probably because I've experienced it multiple times. It was with my second and then with our third that I would think possibly the potential there if we ever had a fourth would happen. So um, that might be something. I don't know. But That's such a great idea. So if you're listening, yeah, like if you like once you're back to your normal self, write a letter to your future self in case you mm-hmm. have another baby and you're feeling somewhat off and not yourself at whatever stage, then you can read this letter and know you're going to go back there. Like you're going to mm-hmm. feel like yourself again. And that I think is a really great exercise to remind us like we're, we're okay. We're good. It's not us. It's just the, yeah. it's just the, you know, the season. It's just the journey to motherhood and our children just, I mean, I don't want to say they make us work for it. It's just part of it. You know, like each child brings so much, right? Like blood and tears and pain, literally. Joy on the other end, I think is that much more sweet, you know, because of it. When you know that it was, it was almost earned, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's earned. Really, yeah. And it's a beautiful journey, motherhood, because. Oh my gosh, yes to do that, you know, and go through all that and come out on the other end and then, and not only come out on the other end, but even stronger. That's amazing to me, you know, and share. And so many of us are empaths. And so we share with others and encourage others who are in it. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I can totally see you with more kids because I feel like you have enough love but then I also know you have your uh, profession that you love. That's what I think about. Like, honestly, I would have more children. Children are the most beautiful beings, you know, mm-hmm. on earth. And I now understand that. But it, it won't be fair for my children right now because I love my job too. Mm-hmm. So it's more like lack of time and resources. And I want to do, and I feel like four is like max. But I thought that was three, but now I'm really like four is my max, but I really do um, love being a mom. But there was a time like when Elise was young and she was not, you know, walking and then she, I couldn't potty train her for a long time. She was in diapers until she was like five years old. And now I look at my four-year-old son and I can't even imagine him being in his diaper, yeah. you know? So yeah. like, when you're going through it, you don't really stop and think. Like you said, you're just like, you just go, yeah. you just you're, go, go, go. And then you got to do what you got to do to mm-hmm. provide and to support. And I think you're like just that warrior mom, you know, strength come into play. But I remember the earlier days when we used to take Elise to your therapy sessions there were days when she would have these like meltdowns in the car and she'll scream and just cry. And sometimes she'll try to like open the car door. I had to, I, I couldn't, I could, I always had to childproof the back door. Yeah. She'll know that, that, that she can't do that. I mean, taking her to speech therapy was the most dreaded part of my day because I didn't know what that day was going to look like. Some days she was okay. Some days she was just screaming and, I had to just tune her out. And I look back to those days now with like fondness in my heart mm-hmm. because I feel like we grew so much together, me and her. Absolutely. As, as yeah. a mom and a daughter. Like, do you have those moments with your son? Absolutely. Yeah. Knowing that, yeah, that you've been through it and you're on the other side. With Jacob, we've had quite a few hospital stays due to some were planned um, surgeries. 
for, you know, a number of things. And then others were unplanned, um, maybe due to a pneumonia or something. Those are always really challenging. And when you're in it, it's, uh, oh, it just, it's so busy. It's ever, it's all the things it's busy and it's concerning and it's uh, all of that. But being on the other side of it and him not having hospitalization for some time now, it's, and even in those times, like, I guess that's what I can relate to. I'm not necessarily taking to an appointment and him having a difficult time on the way, but um, being in a hospital room with him and encouraging him through and praying over him that we would come to the other side together. And God's blessed us that each time we have. And so that's been an amazing thing. Wow. You know, to have this like warrior buddy. Um, Exactly. Your warrior buddy. That's perfect way to put it. Did you ever feel you never felt like angry or resentful towards God? No, if I think about it, no. I mean, in my life, I've experienced that emotion in other departments, but not, not regarding that. It doesn't come to mind. Um, amazing. I ask you because I, I've had that moment, um, where, and it's understandable. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, cause I was, you know, I, I would ask God, I would talk to him. I would just sometimes just be so sad and just in despair. I would go to a local church and just sit Mm -hmm. inside the church and I'll just have this quiet moment with God. And I would say, I did this for you, which was like the stupidest thing to say, but I really felt like at the time, my decision to have a lease, even though I felt like I wasn't ready, I really did it due to faith, out Mm -hmm. of my faith and what I thought was the right thing in the eyes of God. And when she was born with all of these um, like disabilities, for those of you who don't know, she has Syngap. It's a genetic condition. It's a lot of people don't know what the exact characteristic is, but it's intellectual disability, various learning disabilities, fine motor, gross motor. She has autism, like autistic like qualities, pretty much. And she has a seizure disorder. So she's on the like the moderate to severe disability um, scale. But I have moments like that where I would just sit there and ask, why? Like, why did you let this happen to me and my beautiful daughter? As if it was a bad thing, because it felt like a bad thing. For her, for my daughter, Mm -hmm. I used to worry, like, how is she going to live her life? You know, like, how would people tease her? Like, is she going to be able to make friends? And till this day, frankly, she doesn't have too many friends because she can't connect with kids um, like her age group in the same way. So Mm -hmm. she hangs out with like her four-year-old brother, even her 13-year-old sister outgrew her. But I feel like you're her friend. (laughs) we're buddies man yeah (laughs) you know that's the thing too where I love my job and I love the individuals who I say work but it's it's different there's a different word it's not play it's not work it's this more profound experience that we get to journey on daily weekly and yeah she's as you were talking I was thinking too I, I was realizing I don't know, some years ago, maybe five or 10 years ago, actually it was probably around the time of uh, Jacob had a spinal surgery, maybe four or five years ago now. And it was at the end of that, that I was, you know, the Lord really spoke to me that Jacob has a calling on his life and just as you and I do, and he's no different. There's a calling on his life and a very deep one to 
teach empathy and patience and understanding and acceptance. And, and those are very hard things to do. Like Jacob can do that outside of having a relationship with someone, which I don't think many people can say that, you know, to demonstrate empathy to somebody else, to demonstrate and expand someone's, you know, ability to understand another person and accept what's going on. Oftentimes that has to be done in a very trusted relationship, right? Because if some stranger comes, they're viewed as someone who's, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about and is butting in and all of so, but done in a trusted relationship, it's, you know, oftentimes welcomed. And that takes a lot of work, you know, to do and and to get to, which so many of us are up to, but Jacob's able to do those things by being himself, you know, and people meeting him and meeting our family. And I think that's such a beautiful thing that he gets to constantly do that, you know, for other and do it so easily. That's the other, I'm, I struggle with those things still, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can relate in marriage if you're trying to help your spouse to, you know, with some of those things, empathy, patience, understanding, you know, it's work sometimes. And I struggle with the patience to do that. You know, it's just kind of my personality. I kind of just want to be a control freak and just do it now and make it happen. But he's able to do that in such a gentle way uh, that I think it's just so beautiful. And to have a calling like that on your life, gosh. And I think the same thing with Elise. You know, you sit and you speak with her and she shares her interests and what went well during the day. And you see those simple things that are appreciated by her that we should all value so highly. And it takes you back to that seat of gratitude. And she's able to do that just by having a conversation with you for even the first time, you know, and it's like, wow. Like that, that's so beautiful. First of all, but I can totally, I, I wish I could meet Jacob in person one day, but yeah, that's a superpower. I think so many people nowadays have, you know, amazing degrees, they have high IQ and they have all of these, you know, awards and whatever things on their resume, but they don't, they lack that, you know, very important trait of empathy and patience. And I mean, you can't even teach that to some people. So Jacob is born with this amazing gift that really like makes this world a better place. Like without those traits, like what is the real meaning to life and family and friendships, you know? Uh, and Elise definitely taught me. I always talk about, oh, the simple joys and simple joys. We have to appreciate the little things. And I don't repeat this. Like I truly, genuinely mean it. And I learned that through Elise. Mm-hmm. The way she laughs, the joy that she has, like over little things. It's just yeah. <laughs> in her eyes. Yeah, there's no pretense there's no she is just so happy and so thankful for everything and the joy is just so amazing that she makes me feel dumb sometimes I'm like sitting here complaining about something or you know I'm sitting here thinking about these things that I have to do when this person you know my daughter can just her level of joy is unlike anything I've seen in anyone else that I've met. And that's, I think, her gift to the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. So you must see this a lot. So as a therapist, do you see um, these different Mm -hmm. gifts that, you know, these children carry? Yeah, absolutely. And um, connections, you know, top priority of my list. I was, have recently been working as a community manager with an SLP who, 
has a brand that's truly amazing. Um, the work that we do at the clinic is awesome. And, and I'm just so constantly impressed for a time. I was like, wow, this is, you know, my position at the clinic has opened so many opportunities for me. And this has been one of them to meet so many other therapists who feel just as strongly as all of us at the clinic do. And so we were having this discussion the other day um, with an audience about core values and developing your core values as a therapist and what are those and different than, you know, your wish list for a job. You know, I just, I want to be making this much. I want this many days off. I want, you know, would have to have these resources there at the job. And those are definitely important, but having a separate conversation, we were discussing um, core values and how that influences our day to day. And for both of us at the top of our list was connection with our students and clients, and then also their support systems, you know, whether that's their parents or their caregivers. Um, We have a lot of family members who bring children to therapy, you know, friends even who bring, you know, their friends, kids to therapy and stuff. So having that connection with those people, because uh, she has this really great way of describing it in that we as therapists have to join with the caregivers to really reverse engineer a student's life. Meaning sometimes as a professional, we can like look at the here and now and like, okay, they, they're not saying words. So that's our first priority. We have to get them to say words. And then, you know, our second priority is combine those single words and we scaffold up. But are we ever as professionals reverse engineering their life? Meaning are we seeing them? Yes, there's a 24 month old sitting in front of me, but am I seeing them as a 24 year old? And what does their life look like? And what do we want it to look like? And what, what does the family hope for it to look like? And we have a parent slash employee at the clinic who has children who are two adult men and they are thriving right now. They are attending college classes and have a group of friends outside of their family, this group of friends that they've made completely on their own and um, will someday have degrees and certificates to a point that they can assist with a family organization that this family has started. And it's a beautiful thing. And these two boys would be, you know, would have been considered moderate to severe when they were, you know, junior high, high school, but there was that persistence and there was constantly that looking at them Definitely looking at them in the here and now, but also looking at them many years into adulthood. And and so if we look at them that way, then it also recalibrates our priorities today. You know, what am I going to put on the top of the list to work on? And what that looks like is, are we working on flexibility from a very young age? From a very young age. I think we can all... <laughs> Anyone who has a uh, toddler, you know, you're thinking like, gosh, yeah, we really do need to be working on flexibility. Are we working on that? Are we working on um, their ability to transition, you know, between things from a very young age? Are we teaching them how to advocate and protest for themselves? I'm constantly telling um, caregivers that we will be working on some of their first words. I'm going to focus on are stop, no, all done, don't. You know, and those are very powerful. Yeah, it's like drawing boundaries 
for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And otherwise we see, you know, possible behaviors that we don't want to see communicating those behaviors. We see falling, crying, yelling, scratching, hitting, you know, you name them and that's communication. And what are they communicating in so many of those? I don't want to do this activity. I want to do that instead, or no, don't move that bear, you know, or stop singing that song. You know, that's what they're trying to communicate, but they don't have that word. And so the alternative is, well, I'm going to show you that I don't want you to do X, Y, or Z. So those are often words that <clears throat> we work on. If I have a student who's uh, not able to verbally communicate, then we're putting those icons and images on their AAC device. AAC would be augmentative alternative communication. So that can look different as high tech as an iPad or eye gaze system that speaks for them uh, to low tech, you know, symbols that represent a word or message. So yeah, working on those things too is really important. I still remember um, back in the days, it, it was called PEX. I don't remember what that stands yeah. for. Yeah, picture exchange um, communication system. Yeah, I didn't know if Elise can ever speak. So I downloaded these photos. I cut them out. I laminated. Them. I think you may have seen it. I put them on Velcro. Um, on I made her own little communication folder. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I did whatever I can to try to help her. But I was also so sad and scared. You know, like, like I would fast forward and think, okay, can she ever talk? Like, what, what do I do if she can't speak? You remember when she used to like do that, like cry? Yeah, yeah I do. Falling down, like she used to just fall to the floor and cry. Miss Selena <laughs> seen it all. Yeah, I do. I do remember those days and how far we've come, right? How far we've come to where now she'll take things out of her closet and show me <laughs> what she got and why she likes it and all this. Uh, other cool stuff that is very typical for, you know, a child her age. But, you know, those are some myths too, that as professionals, we have to debunk. Research, you know, tells and shows us that actually the verbal abilities of a student who uses AAC are, you know, far exceed that of a student who really needs it, never gets it. And I think that that's a myth that unfortunately, um, you know, is sometimes can be out there that, well, if my child's using this AAC method, they're never going to be verbal. And that's just research does not show that. It shows the complete opposite in that. And the other thing too, is like some of these research research statistics that are out there staggering, you know, modeling is so important for a child. And we see that modeling with an AAC user is paramount. That if we modeled only in the times of their speech sessions, and I'm paraphrasing this research, I don't have it in front of me, but if we modeled only in the time of their speech sessions, it would take a child 84 years on average to gain the vocabulary and some of the skills that it takes an 18 month old if we're only doing it at that one time. So it's our job as therapists and professionals to really include the family and demonstrate and not only demonstrate, but also have the family demonstrate to us and express to us what are their priorities, what have they been working on, what's working, what's not working, so that we can work together. So with that said, um, I'm sure there are listeners with young children who may be showing signs of a speech delay. What are some steps that parents should take? And at what point would you say the parent needs to take them in for evaluation? Yeah, I would always speak with a pediatrician about that. 
so the wonderful thing is I think so many pediatricians are now doing a lot more screeners. I know our pediatrician um, is doing that for not only speech and language delays, but also autism. And they'll, you know, at, at the well checkups for our two younger boys, I recall filling out some information about their attention and ability to regulate and their communication. So I would say, you know, be as honest as you can on those questionnaires, because that information is going to be really helpful for a medical professional to recommend if they notice anything. So there would be that. And then if you have older children, and then you're, you know, so you know what their development look like. And then now you have a younger child who you're questioning, because it's like, well, you know, I remember, you know, Johnny and Mary doing this by this age. And now, you know, my younger son is not immediately, yeah, go to your pediatrician and discuss those things and your concerns and share all the examples that you have. I would say that would be the biggest thing. And pediatricians, you know, will then in a lot of cases refer out to a speech language pathologist for an evaluation, which would be telling then at that point. At our clinic, we provide free 30 minute consultations. So that's not the same as an evaluation. Um, evaluation would be more formal, standardized testing that would happen, but the consultation is still really valuable because the child gets in with a speech language pathologist for a certain period of time for them to observe. And if there are any, you know, concerning things that are noted during that time, then an evaluation would be recommended to look further. It's, you know, would be treated like a, a medical condition. So if you went to your doctor and showed them some concerning symptom, you know, they would either, oh, I've seen this before, you know, use this over the counter thing, or they might because of their background knowledge and training, they would say, oh, you know what, let's get some tests run. And that's what would happen with speech and language, you know, they would be observing these things and then either say, well, you know, it's likely this and it's not a concern or no, you know what, I think there is something here, let's get them tested. Yeah, and early intervention is so important for children. I think some moms, some parents, and I think this like an older, I was told by the, the older generation that all oh, just that wait and see approach, like, oh, they're going to grow out of it. But I'm personally, I, I think it's better to be safe than sorry. And there's nothing bad that's going to come out of getting your young children like therapy sessions. If they grow out of it, like great, right? That's not going to that they're long-term like academics. You know, we're bound by ethics too as speech professionals. So I'm a speech language pathology assistant and the you know counterparts I work with, speech language pathologists, we're all bound by the same ethics. And so if a student does not need therapy, it wouldn't be recommended in the first place. And if they start therapy and then they meet their goals and are performing at an age-appropriate level, then it would be unethical to continue them in therapy. And so, you know, don't worry that, you know, if you're seeing a quality ethical professional, they're not going to continue your child in therapy for unnecessary reasons. So you mean like if they're in therapy, it's because the professionals have evaluated and they've decided that the child is going to benefit from therapy than not. Right. Right. That's good to know. That's very reassuring to know. And, you know, over the years, I've met so many amazing people like along this journey, like you're one of them as a Lisa speech pathologist, you're a big part of her life. You know, you're just as I think sometimes even more important than um, like her school teacher, because her school teacher changes every year. But you've been there by her side since she was like kindergarten or first grade. 
very young. I remember we were introduced to Wings by her friend that she met in kindergarten. So it's been some time. So you're her constant. You know, her teachers change, school aides and her school therapist change, but you're that person who was always there. And I find great comfort in knowing that because it could be kind of confusing when you're navigating this journey as a special needs parent as so many people. You see so many different specialists, so many different doctors, there's so many referrals and you're just like, you have so many um, business cards. Yeah. My yeah. supervisor or someone that I met in the regional center gave me this giant folder. Okay, here's your book. And <laughs> like, I had like three yeah. sheets with business cards or with business card thoughts. And she said, okay, make sure you keep everyone's business card. You're going to get a lot of them. And I ha- I remember thinking, well, that's weird. I've never had this many <laughs> business cards. And this was like 10 years ago. Now I keep everything on my phone. But yeah, you do meet a lot of people along the way. And so for me, it's just been so important to have someone like you. I could never like thank you enough because you've oh, been that constant. You. you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, we sometimes have harder years you know, her um, fourth to sixth grade years were great. And then her middle school years were just so hard. Mm -hmm. Like we go through different phases. So it's just really nice to have someone who really knows knows your child. You're just part of her life. And and imagine, you know, her not having you by her side. It's like we all have to work as a team. Definitely, definitely. And for for listeners who might be in it and are like, gosh, how do I get that for my child? It's, you know, accessing services is a whole other beast. It just, it just is. And you'll go through, you know, seasons, like anything else in life, you'll go through seasons. And some of those seasons are shorter in regards to professionals and your time with them and others are longer. And so for the position that I work in currently, um, I work in a private clinic. And that was, you know, a personal professional decision for myself. If you know, you ever get the chance to have, if you have to explore speech therapy for your child, I'd encourage take all the services that you can get. And so you're going to get speech therapy in school because they'll be identified as having a special need. You know, if you can get also speech therapy funded through your private medical insurance, you know, that is so wonderful as well and a great resource. So that's the setting that I work in. And I'm so blessed to work among some really passionate, creative. The field of speech just called me because of its creativity. Um, I've never met a group of people outside of speech pathology that are as creative because we're faced with obstacles all the time. You know, it's not, it's not ethical and it's not in us to, if we have a challenging session to just, Oh, okay. Well, that was tough. Like. I guess they'll have to be exited. You know, that's not an option. It's how, then how do we do it? Uh, One of my mentors at the clinic and one of the co-owners of the clinic constantly says, we need to find out what makes them tick to make them talk. And that's so true. And that will change and with their age and all of those things. So where I was getting at though, is if you're a parent currently of a child and you're like, gosh, well, how do I get that? You know, Angela's describing this relationship in this constant and how do I get that? And it's going to possibly look different for people, but you would explore services outside in a clinic setting. And it's a definitely a team effort. Absolutely. So myself as a speech language pathology assistant, I work with a group of people. So 
Um, Elisa is also very familiar with my clinical supervisor and they have a great relationship and he's constantly providing, you know, his expertise. And then I'll even have, you know, like I said, our, our owners, both of them pour into us so much and pour their expertise and knowledge. And then I have coworkers who I can go to and say, you know, this activity didn't really land as I expected and we'll try this or I have this material and, and it's so collaborative and that's a beautiful thing about our clinic. So if you can find that, I would really encourage. So that's speaking as a professional. And then speaking as a parent, I would say, just don't stop the search. And it can be exhausting at times. I understand that. But continue to, if you go to a particular clinic and it doesn't fit or their policies aren't in line, their core values aren't in line with what you envision for your child, time's too precious don't waste it there, you know, move, move on and make sure that you're part of a clinic that's really going to bring you into the fold of the information during consultations, during parent coaching. Uh, We've gotten a lot of feedback since this era of COVID has started with teletherapy that, you know, parents really appreciate the parent coaching that we've, you know, have done and continue to do because that's so important. Yeah, look for those things and look into your health insurance, you know, to see what possibly is offered and is covered. And again, speaking with my parent hat on that can be exhausting. Jordan and I have had to find like for us and our family, it works to kind of compartmentalize some things. So he often takes role in charge of a lot of the insurance things that have to get done. And then I'm kind of more like the school and therapeutic side of things. I handle like communication with those professionals and stuff. And my hat goes off to single mothers and fathers who navigate this independently. I just am in awe. I can imagine. It's a team effort for sure. And Mm -hmm. for um, myself and my husband, I do a lot of the paperwork I, I, I'm the fighter, I'm the advocate. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to medical insurance or whatever it is, you just can't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. And this really helped me is to know that there are always pe- gatekeepers in this journey. Like it's not that they're bad people, but especially like with medical insurance, a lot of it I think comes down to just money and policy. So often they might just... Like for me, the answer that I got was she didn't have a clear diagnosis. Like you had to have like the autism diagnosis to have ABA, for example. And I had to mm-hmm. prove to them why someone with her diagnosis can benefit from ABA, which required mm-hmm. like hours of research. I had to photo photocopy all of this paperwork. And you come that equipped, most likely you're going to get, because we have a lot of rights. Children with disability and their parents have a lot of right? It's just a matter of not taking no for an answer and just advocating, which means you have to fight for them in a firm but respectful way. And that's something that I've learned over the years where I would sometimes get emotional, but sometimes I would just have to kind of put on this like professional, almost like I'm an attorney. I'm I'm, I'm my daughter's attorney and I have to just be firm. And that's Mm -hmm. normally when I got these things done. So for the speech therapy that she takes with you, I mean, there's no way. So it took me like a year to get that um, approved. And it was very stressful. But once we got that now, the um, her medical insurance can't say no. So from then on, it's like that one year of, you know, intense stress. And now 
we've gone on to like, you know, eight, seven, eight years of just wow. having therapy with you. Yeah. And, you know, I want to continue to share these tips too. I have some tips on my blog, but I think have sharing them on the podcast and audio form is important too. So I really hope like one day you can come back and maybe yeah. talk more about that process. But yeah, today- I'd love to, because especially now in this time of the pandemic, it's hard to probably meet with parent groups and support groups because of, you know, everything that's going on. So to have these other outlets that can serve as those networks and those streams of information is vital because that's where you're going to get so much, so many nuggets that are going to influence you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for example, I found Miss clinic through Elisa's classmate in kindergarten. Her, her mom was, amazing and she gave me the information and of course you got to do your own research but yeah and, and I, I'm hoping you can come back one day and then we can kind of go deeper into what the process looks like but today like thank you so much for just being here and I'm so I feel so grateful that you opened up and I know we always meet in like a professional parent and therapist setting but the fact that we were able to talk like friends like old friends um, because I see you like every week, a couple times yeah. in years, and we're not only moms, but we're also professionals, like finding our purpose. And I think a big part of that is rooted in our children with yeah. a disability. So I think that's where um, I find that connection with you. And I feel like we're kind of like similar in a lot of ways. And I didn't know that before today, but just the yeah. uh, you know, there were things personally about me that you, you know, are coming to find out. And that's something too, that while I, you know, let my, my experience as a special need parent influenced by professional delivery, I'm also very aware that your child is your child, not my child, meaning, and I don't want to presume that, oh, well, this is how it was for me. So this is of course how it's going to be for you. And so I guard some of that information for that reason, because I want I want you to feel heard as the parent or the other person who I'm working with to feel heard and feel like I'm, I'm individualizing to their child and not projecting my child and right. my child completely on them. That makes perfect sense because like, you don't want to put your, you, you're, you want to be the the listener, the person yes. or in that hour be more about that child. But I really feel um, and I can hear that. I think that's like your son, you know, Elise was <laughs> doing that to me. She's, like she's all trying to open the door, like, mom, I need you. And she's like, mom, mom, what are you doing? I got to tell her all about how I recorded a podcast with yeah. Miss Athena. She's going to be so happy. But thank Aww. you so much for your time today. And thank you for sharing your story. And I just want to say you are amazing. And I really feel so grateful that you are acting upon this calling because you're so perfect for it like this is oh, exactly thank you. you thank you and thank you for the opportunity this has been oh. so lovely and I'm so encouraged that you know platforms like this exist and to know that your host one of these platforms is so amazing and I encourage you and support you in this oh I feel the same way about you Miss Selena and I have to say a big part of all of this it started with my daughter Elise She's the one that, you know, made me have to quit my job. I had to stay home and I needed to figure things out. I was so young in my 20s. I was like, okay, now what? Like, now what do I do? I can't work. I can't work outside of the house because I have to take care of this, you know, special girl. And I feel like she kind of just opened the 
the door for me. So I feel like that's what um, Jacob did for you too. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm so blessed to know you. Thank you so much for your time, Miss Selena. And I hope to have you back sometime next year so we can go yes. more details. I, I know other moms are going to make feel find this so helpful. For sure. I'm, I look forward to that. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time, Miss Selena. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You are my sunlight. Thanks so much for listening to Mommy Diary, the podcast. If you can relate to any of my stories, my hope is that you leave this episode feeling a little less alone and a lot more inspired. For more parenting and lifestyle stories, head over to my blog, mommy-diary.com or join me on Instagram at mommydiary. If you're loving this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a five-star review. I love connecting with you, so send me a DM and let me know what you'd like to hear next. Talk to you next week.